Welcome back to Trojan Talk. This is a this is a different mood than we left you off at last week. Uh, USC goes on the road, loses 30-27 in overtime to BYU. A lot to discuss. So as always, I'm Ryan Young, joined by former USC quarterback Max Brown. Max, how are you? Doing great. Crazy how moods change. Totally different mood than uh, last time we spoke. It's it's like a total reset in every way. Uh, I say that meaning a our mood and you know the, the tenor of the conversation around this team, but also everything we thought we knew or had learned about this group coming off that Stanford game was kind of put back in place. And that's not to say that you know there aren't things still to take away from those early successes. I still believe in Keaton Slovis, but he goes from having a near flawless game to a very flawed game. The O-line, which had been so good through the first two weeks, had its worst performance of the season. The, the defense had some major struggles, so it it kind of uh, flips the narrative we had last week back on its head. Just Let's start with overall reactions. You, you, you watched the game. What was your first thought afterward? Yeah, first thought afterward was probably just how we opened it up, just how crazy the, the, the tides can turn from last week thinking – SC's on a trajectory to great, great, great success. And not that they've totally lost that, but it's definitely, definitely died down. And um, I guess last week, the idea of like Clay being on the hot seat in any regard was kind of out the window. You figured BYU would be not an easy win, but a, but a, but a sure win for sure. And then now it's kind of that, that, that seat's now warmed up again. And it's just, it's just crazy how things change in a matter of seven days, I think. We also um, kind of brought Keaton back down to earth, and we saw a lot of freshman mistakes that you that you would just expect. It's not even like you're uh, you're 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 mad at it or oh my gosh how'd that happen? That's just kind of the byproduct of starting a true freshman quarterback. And so I think we got some insight of into why JT Daniels probably won this job. And then uh, yeah, I think you saw just the the areas that that, that SC needs to grow. You saw. Um, a young a young secondary get beat at times and you saw a BYU team that just executed a game plan flawlessly and I think when we flash forward here in two months we're probably going to look back on that Stanford team not being the Stanford team we uh, yeah. were accustomed to seeing and I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, I alluded to it in, the, in last week's podcast where I didn't think that was the Stanford team we were we were used to seeing uh, and uh, my gut and the film kind of kind of led me in the right way in that that Stanford team's probably a bowl team, but uh, I don't know if they're much more than that. Well, even that's in question now. They they go to uh, Florida and use, lose 45-27 at UCF. So it, it definitely does put what USC did last week in a different context. Um, you, you mentioned Clay Helton. I'll, I'll start there. We're going to get into the Keaton Slovis and all the – aspects of this game here the rest of the pod but we'll start big picture I, I I would I would counter and say I don't think that Clay was ever off the hot seat but it had at least uh it looked like he had yep. plenty of time to to prove himself one way or the other and I'm not saying that that one game changes everything but if you look at this in the in the big picture that was a game they had to win like they really needed to start three and oh and enter this gauntlet of Utah, Washington on the road, Notre Dame on the road after the bye week, with that early momentum and and just that buffer in the win loss column, and to to drop a 
not only a winnable game, but a game they should have won. I mean, maybe this will prove out that BYU is a much better team than we expect. But as of right now, what we what we know, that was a game they should have won. And yeah. So for them yeah. to lose that, for, for them to lose that, really amplifies the spotlight on Clay. It turns the heat on that seat up even more, because now they almost have to come out and upset a couple of these games coming up here to really change perception, not just fan perception. You know, some fans' perception is not going to change no matter what they do this year, but to change perception of Carol Foltz and and whoever's going to be making this decision eventually. Yeah, no, I'm right with you. I think, uh, yeah, by no means is he off the hot seat. I just think, yeah, at 3-0, and if, if they had won BYU and they go 3-0 and and then you – you go to uh, play Utah and you lose that game, then it's like, okay, that happens. That's a great football team. Right. They're three and one. Right. To me, the temperature of that seat after that doesn't change at all, which is kind of sure. what, what I was alluding to. And then even then, if you go at Washington and lose, obviously you're going to have complaints. This is USC. But even then, you're sitting right three and two uh, under this uh, hypothetical situation, obviously. But it's still like, okay, we lost to two great football teams, and we can debate whether Washington's great, but at, at least in terms of the quality of program, they're, they're, they're up there with, 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 with a lot of them uh, nationally. So that's where I came out with that one. I think uh, you're spot on, though, in terms of BYU as a game. I mean, SC really had to win if you talk about – I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be hard-pressed to think that SC can go out of the next three games – for sure undefeated, uh, not to be a downer, 2-1 and one, I think would be a huge success. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was a, a huge loss on the road. And I didn't buy into the whole trap game narrative. Um, I think the definition of a trap game is when your team um, kind of gets in the flow of things and maybe takes an opponent light, lightly just because you kind of get used to the monotony of kind of just the season. And to me, this is the first road game, like, uh, guys are hyped up. It's the first plane ride. It's the first hotel. It's the first time eating at like restaurant before the game. So it's a lot of newness. So I don't think guys got in a trap game. I just think it was a BYU roster that had the perfect defensive game plan and executed it flawlessly, uh, flawlessly uh, to, to, to get the win. I, I thought flawlessly was, was a new hip term that the kids are using <laughs> these days. I was going to take notes on that from you. Um, no. No, no, I hear you. So, so, so coming into the season, I thought that they could actually lose these next three games and Clay would still have a chance to prove himself on the whole of the season if they had won this BYU game. And I think what causes more concern for people is that it looked a lot like things looked last season, whereas that Stanford game was so eye-opening because for the first time in a long time, they took command. They took full control of the game. They scored 35 unanswered points. They looked... Like they were enforcing their will on an opponent for the first time in a long time. And they reverted right back this week to looking sloppy, to missing opportunities, to doing everything they can to keep an opponent in the game to the point where it ultimately bites them. And that, more, even more than the outcome, I think is what has sent any tepid believers running back the other direction to the, uh, to the anti-Clay crowd. Because it Everything we heard in the offseason about this being a mentally sharper team, the focus is better, the discipline, all that stuff kind of went out the window in this game from my vantage point. And, it, and a lot of fans said this, and I agree. It looked like the 2018 Trojans again. Yeah, I think uh, 
you, your point about they, they did everything to keep them in the game. I mean, yeah, three red zone turnovers, I think it was, or two for sure. Like, that's – I mean, if you had a ranking of how to lose a ball game, like, that's tier one. And so I think uh, you can dive down into the nitty-gritty and you, you hate to blame it on one guy. But, I mean, that, that put the defense in, I mean, a, a tough spot, especially early on. But, yeah, it was definitely uh, – I mean, a, a goofy game. You talk about down the stretch, some of those calls that the refs had, and I know the the, the counter to that was, oh, the refs should never play a, a role when it's the, when SC has right. so much skill level. But it is football, like that has happened. I mean, it was just it, down down the stretch. It was just weird. You, you talked about it. it. Allowed BYU to hang around some of those calls, but um, yeah, not trying to belabor a point, but yeah, missed opportunity for SC for sure. I, I guess the worst part is that there was. I think this is the way we closed the last podcast. There was, there was real reason for optimism. And now coming off this game, I don't see any way that they upset Utah. Now, it's college football. Wacky things happen. We could be having this same talk in reverse next week about how everything's changed again. But just after what I saw and, and just knowing Utah to be a disciplined team and it's played very well at this point, it just really takes a lot of wind out of the sails entering this game. But I want to go to a comment that Clay made on Sunday night. He has his weekly media teleconference call with, with us uh, scribes every Sunday. And well, after the game Saturday, he had come out and said, this is going to be a special team. Mark my words. This is going to be a special team. And that's, that's standard Clay fare. I mean, it's, that's his thing. He, he likes to pump up his guys publicly. So that's not out of the ordinary. Then he doubles down on Sunday night and says walking out of BYU reminded him a lot of how he felt walking out of Utah in 2016 after the 1-3 and three start before nine straight wins in the Rose Bowl. And he didn't draw a direct comparison between Keaton Slovis and Sam Darnold, but the implication was there. And I just don't know what the upside is in saying that publicly. I mean, sure, go, go into the locker room and tell your guys that, hey, we were in the same boat in 2016 and we went and won the Rose Bowl. That's fine. But putting it out in the public has no benefit because he's not going to sway anybody uh, with his words or his optimism. And, it, and it, that's how it almost comes across is, you know, trust me here. Believe me, this is this is going to be a great season. I know it. This happened before. It, was, it almost came like across like a sales pitch to fans. I just don't think it needs to go that direction. Did you hear those comments and how did they hit you? I mean, you you were on that 2016 team. Yeah, no, and uh, hearing you kind of give your thoughts, I totally see where you're coming from. I, I heard those comments. Um, they didn't hit me as strong, and maybe it's because I was kind of in that locker room, and so I kind of know what he's saying in terms of having a roster you love, and then for whatever reason, a for lack of a better term, goofy loss happens, which I think is how he viewed that 2016 Utah loss in terms of we're better than that football team, but the score didn't uh, didn't indicate that. I just think if you're Clay Helton right now, you're – I mean, he, he knows that the whole hot seat deal. He's aware of everything that's going on, and I think – in some regard, he probably was saying the same message all last year after each all seven wins of like we're learning, we're growing. It's a great group of guys, he, and so he was, yeah, yeah, he exactly. Was. And last year, there's probably an element of maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe he knew that hey, this that this team doesn't have it for whatever it whatever that is. But then now he's probably saying, you know what, like, and 
He, he said it in, in – in, I, I, I guess I, I believe him to an extent. I, I believe that he loves these guys and thinks that they're like that, – that they can get it done and win ball games. I believe he thinks that Keaton Slovis is great. And so when he says that comment, it's almost like he's trying to find proof to like back it up for people to like hang on. So I don't – I mean I, I get where his head's at with it. In terms of the upside, I guess if you're him, he, he's trying to say, well, I mean the upside is – Trojan fans, hang in there. We got a Rose Bowl win out of this scenario in 2016. If you believe that there's comparisons there, they ought, like to your point though, like do you really get anything out of that? Does that just make people think like here we go again? Like it's it's never going to be fixed kind of thing. Like I see both sides of it. Um, I think the uh, implications that he's comparing to Sam, it's bold. It's probably right there in terms of a hot shot young quarterback, but. I mean, 2016 was a different ball game, and it's going to be ironic hearing this come from me. But like the idea of losing to losing to Bama week one, losing to Stanford uh, week three, a great Stanford team, and then benching me to then go uh, pick up Sam. I mean, it's, it's just it's a different it's a different ball game, different implications. That was his first year, so it, I mean, it was still kind of hot seat, I guess you could say, but uh, maybe a different type of hot seat in a weird way, but. I don't know. Interesting comments, and I, I feel like it, it, it all comes down to Clay trying to find something tangible to back his words. When the reality is, Trojan fans just want W's in the uh, in the W column. Yeah, well, it's interesting hearing your perspective as as a player who who was on the team and and knows how Clay operates and how he operates the media and his message and whatnot. I just think that that's something that maybe you say if you happen to beat Utah or you happen to win two of these next three games. Then you can make that comparison. People will be like, all right, well, maybe there's something to that. But to make it right now before this gauntlet, it, just, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Because they've got to go out and prove it. And that's, I think it's yeah. just... That's, that's the biggest difference right there is, I mean, after the Utah game, we played two of the worst defenses in the country right after that, and then that sparked us kind of getting going kind of thing mm-hmm. versus now you lose BYU, you're gearing up for three of the best teams on your schedule, three of the best programs in the country. You could say that. that that's fair in terms of year over year. So in terms of, yeah, what do you have looking ahead? I think in 2016 it was like Oregon State and Cal. This, week, this year it's Utah, Washington, and Notre Dame. So obviously a different animal. Yeah, and, and you also touched on this. I, I think the fact that fans heard the same thing all last year, it wasn't this, the 2016 comparison so much, but but it was just wait till November. This team's going to be something special in November. And we just kept hearing it, and, and it just kept getting worse. And so I, I just I'll, – I'll say this, though. I'll I, say this. The one thing I'll, I'll say is uh, when you compare his comments to Willie Taggart, who's kind of on the hot seat at Florida State – I mean, I'll take Clay's any day. Like, Clay, at least, it's optimism. It's positive. It's we got a good locker room. Like, some of Willie's comments, and I haven't listened to his interviews extensively, but it's it's implications of finger-pointing and implications of, right. hey, it's the coordinator and the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator, and I don't know what we're doing. And to me, that is, that's concerning. And obviously, it's tough to be a coach at any point when you lose a game because it's – I mean, shoot, imagine being there, like, me or you or anyone. Like, what do you say? It's, we lost. We, we, we thought we did enough to win the game. We lost. And it's, there's an element of, like, it's a natural. You're always going to kind of say the same thing. But to that point, and in that, that thought just kind of came across my mind, just kind of us breaking this down. But when you compare apples to apples in that regard, I, I, I feel I'm on his optimism and positivity. And, I mean, hopefully it, 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 it pans out here moving forward. 
Yeah, well, well, listen, I'm hoping that's the case because I still want to cover a fun season. And, yeah. And as, as we get into Keaton Slovis, I'll reiterate that I still really believe in him. Uh, Willie Taggart is definitely on the hottest of hot seats. It doesn't get much more hot than that. And it is an interesting point about the conflicting styles and the way they're projecting their message. Let me ask you this, though. As a player, did you all listen to the postgame press conference? Did what Clay said to the media get back in the locker room? Did it matter? How did it hit you guys? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if guys, every guy's listening to Clay's postgame presser, but you better believe every player's hearing or seeing your tweets. They're seeing. To an extent, maybe like my tweets, all the beat writers' tweets, they're seeing Scott Wolf's tweets out there, all that stuff, all that noise. Players see it. Um, I mean, some guys more than other, but that, that, I mean, to put it how it is, that negativity, I mean, guys see it and guys buy in. I remember being there, obviously, my stretch there was four head coaches and about as Twitter, uh, Twitter hot as you could get, but like, I mean, Guys see that, and it plays on guys, and I think subconsciously guys might start buying into that when you talk about Urban Myers in every third tweet kind of thing, like all those things. Right. Like it definitely, it, definitely, it definitely plays a role, and I'm not saying it's something to put an excuse on or anything like that. I mean, it's the world we live in, but uh, in terms of guys being aware of kind of the hot seat and being aware of just what's out there, oh, you better believe it, guys are, uh, are, are tuned into that. I'm sure, I'm sure. But, um, but but as far as Clay goes, you know, clearly a part of his motivation in putting out this tone and these messages is to is to reiterate what he's telling to the guys. Does it have any bearing what he says publicly on on what on the way guys think in the locker room? Oh, um, I think what he's like. I think if his message on Twitter, for lack of a better term, and his message in the locker room are aligned, I think it's just neutral. That's just like business as usual. Like, all right, our coach is locked in. This is what our coach is preaching. All right, let's go. But if, it, if there's a disconnect where there's one message in the locker room and maybe one message in the, uh, out in the Twitter world, if there's a disconnect there, then I think it negatively impacts guys. But, I mean, I have a feeling, just because I've been in those locker rooms before, Clay's message to the press is the exact message he's telling to his guys. Sure. And in that regard, sure. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, it's they're going to get guys going. Oh, it's going to be rah-rah. Guys are going to start believing. No, I think it's just kind of neutral. It's like, all right, that's our message. We're going to – he says that it's, a, it's one at a conference loss before we start conference play. It's not – like I say, it's not a big deal, but it's not the end of the world. All right. And he says that to the press. I buy into that. It's kind of one – that's kind of how, uh, how I correlate it. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I, I think, and, and and maybe I just I just hear too much from the message board segment of our fan base, um, which is very reactionary, and, and and they just they just hear excuses, and I think they'd they'd like to see him look like he's taking a loss harder and not projected as well. He just made one more play than us when the actuality was. I totally get that. Yeah, that that game shouldn't have come down to one play. You're a more talented team. It's this has not been a house of horrors for opposing teams uh, at BYU. This should not have been a game you lost. So it's just it's, – it's all about perception. Yep. It's all about perception. I totally, uh, I totally, totally level with that. And uh, I think at the end of the day, he's got to be him. I think if, uh, he were to, if he were to fake being angry or upset kind of thing, then people would see through that. I think you might – and this might be a, a stretch a little bit, but there's probably some SC fans that wish 
during that seven and six season and in some of that like Lane Kiffin era towards the end that they wish he was more upbeat and positive kind of thing and mm. and, and okay. uh, maybe and not I mean that was who Lane was like you're not going to fake just I mean you want to be authentic and genuine and that's what he was but it, there's always kind of a, a push and pull with that and I just think got to be got to be who you are just like uh, just like anything in life I guess. Yeah, well, the bottom line is that that loss just puts an even brighter spotlight, even more scrutiny on what happens going forward. But let's let's uh, rewind some more and go back to Saturday. Let's talk Keaton Slovis. Uh, he was the reigning Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Week after his first start. We, we, we talked a ton about him last week. It was such an impressive uh, debut start. Really showed everything that Graham Harrell had been talking about with him. Really showed everything we've been seeing on the practice field. He comes out Saturday and has uh, three interceptions on the second series, the third series, and then, of course, the one in overtime to seal the game. What was your overall impression of Keaton's performance, the good, the bad, everything? Yeah, um, I kind of alluded to it in the intro, but to me I kind of walk away saying, yep, that's a, that's a true freshman. Like th- Those are going to happen. When you start a true freshman quarterback, you are going to have to overcome performances like that to, to, to win ball games, you're going to have to overcome performances where he throws two touchdowns and three picks kind of thing and puts your defense in a tough spot. And you're going to have to lean on a defense with a great D line and a up and coming secondary kind of thing. Like you're going to have to do that. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I put out some, some content last week where I thought uh, Keaton's, Keaton's performance was an element of uh, a, a false positive and not that he himself like is not going to be great. I just think that Stanford defense is not necessarily what we thought is not the Stanford defense that we've been accustomed to seeing year in and year out just because I, I thought he had some some easy throws in there that kind of got him in rhythm that aren't going to be real life week in and week out kind of thing. Um, but I think, I mean, his completion percentage is still great. Like, he's still up there. Like, he's still operating. I think he just wishes he had those three throws back. And, it, I mean, he's, uh, by and large, he's given guys uh, chances to make plays. He's getting in, out, in and out of his progressions great. I think he just, I mean, made a mistake on a few of those throws. And those picks that he's throwing are the type of picks that don't happen when you have hundreds of reps to fall back on and you have games and games and starts to to to, to fall back on just because those are those interceptions are are a large part him just losing track of guys and losing track of flowing linebackers that I mean that's college football for you when you make that jump from high school to college so by no means by no means whatsoever is it panic mode for me but I think it was an element of obviously coming back down to coming back down to earth and saying all right this kid is crazy talented we flash forward two years. He can be in the conversation with anyone in college football. But right now, he is still a true freshman quarterback. And you're going to have those uh, those hurdles to overcome at, uh, at certain points. Yeah, and we said it last week. I, I said I, I fully expected him to, to throw a pick in this game and to make a mistake because he was just due. I didn't expect it to go like this. Uh, it does not change my overall outlook on Keaton Slopus. I mean – the reality is he's still through for 281 yards despite having only one pass attempt in the third quarter. He had some nice throws. The touchdown to Pittman in the back of the end zone was a nice throw. And he just made mistakes. And I, I do think they were freshman mistakes. And obviously they shaped the complexion of this game and were a major factor in them losing. So you don't exonerate it because it's it's a major reason why they're now 2-1 and one, not 3-0. and oh. But I, I don't think that his arm talent's any less. I don't think that his upside's any less. Let's go through those yeah. three through those three picks. The first one, 
He's trying to find Amon Ross St. Brown just outside the right hash. I guess either didn't see the linebacker or underestimated his range. The guy makes a nice lunging play to get the ball. What was your, your breakdown on that play? Yeah, breakdown on that play. Should have gone to the outside to Tyler Vaughn's on a five-yard out, a throw that he's made before in games, uh, quick game stuff, made it against Stanford. Uh, I think he just kind of maybe pre-played the play in his mind, thought he was going to fit it in there. Um, I think when you throw that five-yard out to the field, it's a harder throw than that hitch that he tried to throw uh, would have been. So, I mean, I can at least see kind of the thought process that he's trying to do, but definitely underestimated things. Um but in terms of the play call itself, from what I've seen, that's a play call they've run a, a bunch these first three weeks in terms of defensive backs being off, trying to hit quick hitters, and he just got beat on that one. I think it was a hell of a play by the linebacker for sure, but uh, they, caught him, uh, they caught him on that one for sure. Yeah, so, so Clay Hilton's comment Sunday night about what he saw on tape from, from Keaton Slovis, he, he said that he was he – was, uh, getting bored with his progressions. He was rushing his reads, not going through all of them, and that's something that they emphasize with him and, and that, that he would admit himself. Uh, the second one is I thought maybe – well, the, the last two were, were, were pretty bad. That first one I didn't think was as bad. The next one is down the seam. He's trying to find Drake London, and the linebacker easily just jumps right in front of that route and has an has a easy pick. My guess is they just didn't see him. What did you see on that second pick? Yep, didn't see him. And oftentimes you lose track of that will linebacker when you run uh, vertical concepts on the other side. So I know it's hard to kind of uh, – I'll, I'll paint a picture uh, podcast style, but he's, it's, it's a vertical concept. He's got three receivers on the right. Um, and then when it goes to one high, one high safety, he's going to work the two interior receivers working from kind of right to left, if you can imagine that. And the, the high safety went with the – with one vertical, he tried to fit it, fit it into the other vertical, but um, which is like kind of the right spot to be in to an extent. But that the, the the asterisk there is when they drop eight guys, there's nothing to hold those underneath linebackers. There's no route holding that will linebacker, and he's just got to know that. Um, and the answer there is, uh, so what happens when those linebackers drop that far deep? It's just got to check the ball down, and that's kind of. That's BYU's game plan is if we're going to drop eight, we're guarding against this type of play. We're guarding against you getting these big chunk plays. We're going to force you to check the ball down and then rally. So a good play by that Will linebacker. I think any quarterback watching that play knows exactly how that happened. Is His eyes are to the right. He's tracking his receivers. Then you just lose track of that left outside linebacker who's who's flowing with his eyes. So um, just not – yeah, just to reiterate, reiterate it again, it's – just the fact that he hasn't seen that many reps when you talk about only being on campus for nine months that you lose track of that to an extent and uh, paid the price. And, and in his comments after the game, Keaton said that the lesson was, I, I've just got to work my check downs more. It just yep. gets frustrating when you, when you, when you want to push the ball down the field and they're, they're forcing you to do the check downs and, and, and you just gamble a little bit. So I, that totally aligns – what Clay said, what Keaton said, and what you're saying now all kind of aligns with the same picture. Now, even still, that BYU got 10 points off those turnovers. It was still a 17-17 game at halftime. And so that didn't take them out of this game at all. They go into overtime. Let's talk about the overtime approach, and then we'll get to the last pick. They come out and they run the ball. Oh, first of all, the defense has its maybe its best series of the whole game to start overtime. And they force BYU to kick a field goal. 
Uh, Isaac Taylor Stewart has a great pass breakup in the end zone. So there's a real chance for USC to seize this game. The running game had been hit and miss, at least from my vantage point, the whole night. They come out and run it on first down with Vi. He loses a yard. They come back and run it again with Vi. Uh, He gets it to a third and, and, and manageable. And then uh, it's on Keaton. It's a spacing play, as, as Clay Helton said. And he has a couple options. He has Drake London, again, down the seam. But he's short of the first down. So even if he catches it, it's, it's likely not a first down. He has Michael Pittman to the left, who's more open. He's also kind of short of the first down. Looking at that play, what, what did you see there? And what would have been your, your mindset, your read? Yeah, this is just a poor decision. Um, I don't have as much... Uh uh, kind of sympathy or why for this one. This is a, ba- a bad decision. Uh, he, he, he probably should just go outside with it. And to me, if I'm him all year long, when you have Pittman and Michael Vaughn's outside, I know they're longer throws, but these corners are going to be scared out of their mind <laughs> to, to, to prevent a, me saying a swear word, swear word. But I would punish those guys on the outside. I think Interior, I get it, especially when you got uh, Amon Rai in there and you're trying to get into the spacing uh, deals, but a total force throw. Um, but to be honest, I think that um, that pick on the third play, I, if I saw it right, is the exact same play as the first play. Just a different. It seemed like a it, different yeah. uh, a different receiver he's throwing to, and I think, I mean, that concept they've had great success with all year long. So the idea that a play call was messed up or I don't like that call, like I don't buy that at all. They absolutely torched Stanford on that concept. They had success with Fresno State against it just because. Keaton does a good job going through his reads most of the time. Uh, this time he got to his first progression, tried to fit it in there, uh, was just not a good decision. Uh, and I think moving forward, I would not be surprised if we see him really lean on Tyler Vons and Michael Pittman on the outside in some of those quick game stuff because he knows he's going to get soft corners in those scenarios. But no excuse for that and uh, another learning lesson for him for sure. Well, yeah, you mentioned that against Stanford, one of his big completions was to Drake London uh, down the seam where Drake had kind of gotten behind the defense and kind of gotten lost there and, and, and had a huge catch and run. So I'm not sure if it was the exact same play, but it was a similar uh, yeah. uh, attack there. Down the similar seam. concept, yeah. I mean, anytime – you see everyone, it's kind of becoming a buzzword this week, but the whole spacing concept is literally you're going to put – all four receivers, or I guess five if you include the running back, in like a different zone at like five to seven yards. So you're going to have one guy over the middle of the ball, both guys at each like hook curl area, which is like the hash marks. And then you also have your outside receivers at like five-yard hitch territory with your back swinging out one of the sides. So it forces a defense to communicate a bunch. It forces linebackers to make sure their, their, their eyes are right and their, uh, their, their drops are right. And it's such a quick hitter. With Keaton's ability to get the ball out of his hands and USC's athleticism, it's such a basic concept. It's day one install, but it can be lethal if it's executed right. Well, there's a lot more to talk about. Let's just close on Keaton with this. What's your expectation for him the rest of the season, your outlook? Um, I think – I think probably somewhere in the middle of what we saw last game. I don't think – I think Stanford's as good as it's going to get. I mean, that's kind of Debbie Downer uh, way. But I think Stanford's the bar, right? Stanford's – if you're ranking on a 1 to 10, Stanford's the 10. Um, 
And then I think if you go BYU, that's closer to probably two or three. And it's not to me, it's not a one because he did some good things. I mean, completion percentage is still there. He's still operating. He just made three, uh, three tough mistakes. So I think it's probably somewhere in between. I think uh, picks are going to happen. All these teams are going to mix up defenses. He's going to have uh, games in, in elements. He's going to have games on the road. He's going to – I mean, it's not always going to be perfect. Uh, but I think moving forward, you're going to see a lot more drop eight, which – um, I think I may have said this last week, but a, a lot of times when approaching the air raid, there's kind of two schools of thought. It's I'm going to do man coverage and trust my DBs, and you're not going to, and we're going to pack the box, and you're not going to be able to run. Or it's we're going to be drop, we're going to drop eight, and we're going to make passing downfield very tough, and we're going to force you to run the ball. That BYU did the latter; they had success with it. So I anticipate more teams doing that, which will make uh, Keaton's, Keaton's life harder through the air, uh, through, through the air and if, if, if SC can't torch teams through the ground. That's probably a different tangent to go down. But uh, I think, yeah, it's going to be somewhere in between. I still think Keaton's going to have a great year uh, in terms of success and moving this offense. I mean, this offense is lethal if, uh, if you just kind of take what the defense gives you. And, um, yeah, that's kind of where I net out with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, like I said, so high on his arm talent. And as we've mentioned before, this guy is, by all accounts, a film room junkie who I'm sure has replayed all those bad decisions from Saturday over and over again. And I agree with your point that it has to come from reps. You have to actually live those and and, and get used to, to knowing what to expect. But I think he's going to really improve and grow as the season goes on. I think he's going to have more big games against some of the lesser defenses and I think he's going to have more struggles at times but I I definitely believe overall he's going to come out of this season with a pretty good uh highlight reel and a, and a pretty good case to compete for that job next year depending on JT Daniels health let's yeah segue to the play calling in general you mentioned the drop eight defense that's that's something that Clay Helton mentioned that really Changed their. He said they were they were expecting it, and when they saw it, they adjusted and went run heavy. Again, they had one pass attempt in the third quarter, and that was in part because they had a couple of really short series where they ran the ball and punted, and it didn't go anywhere. Um, fans, as I think I've said before, there's there's always a got to be a conspiracy theory brewing somewhere, and the conspiracy theory this week, uh, which was across message boards and Twitter was that Clay Helton must have interjected himself in the play calling after halftime. And that, that couldn't have been all Graham Harrell. So the question I'd asked to Clay on his Sunday conference call, and he said, I mean, I talk with all the coordinators and we share thoughts, but Graham is calling all the plays, was his quote. And he, he praised Graham for, even though he is known as an air raid guy, recognizing that uh, they were – forcing USC to beat them with a the run and, and he committed to it and tried to do it. It didn't work very well overall, but but he claims that was all Graham. I don't buy into the conspiracy theory personally. I'm just kind of setting the stage here so we can discuss it. Did, did you hear any of that buzz, Max? And what was your, your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, heard a little bit. I think it's ridiculous, though. Um, by no means do I look at that and say, oh, wow, they changed course. Uh, no, I mean, if you're listening to this and thinking that Clay was calling plays like no it's a very simple numbers game like if, if you're dropping eight and talk about another buzzword like what exactly does it mean that means you're dropping 
up to five defensive backs and three linebackers into coverage. If SC has four receivers going out for a pass and maybe a fifth running back, that's literally five on eight or yeah, five on eight. So the the numbers are in the run game. And what does that mean? Like BYU literally is lining up with a three man down front and they have <laughs> at times they had like four guys in the box, which is literally an offensive line's dream scenario. You should be able to run the rock all day long. The reason they weren't able to is BYU's nose guard had a great game and their defensive ends were able to clog up double teams and SC wasn't able SC was able to run the ball for three or four yards, but when you talk about putting a drive together play after play after play, you, BYU kind of took their chances and, and, and SC ultimately made the mistake. So, um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think the play calling w- w- was changed at all. I do think it will be interesting to see if, I mean, Mike Leach teams, if you talk about him being kind of the founder of the Air Raid, they've been getting drop eight for years, yet they're still able to find ways – to punish teams and it's not always been through the run so I will be intrigued to see if SC kind of gets to the point where all right when we face a team like Utah and they and they do drop eight because they have such a strong D-line how do we still function as an offense and do you get creative with more uh, quick screens to the receivers and stuff like that that's an interesting way but in terms of uh, overarching like play call scheme changes like no that 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 didn't happen I'm sure Clay's saying little tidbits like oh I like this this pass concept uh in practice at times but I mean he's not going down that road Clay Clay has been a play caller himself with an offensive minded head coach and Steve Sarkeesian and he knows probably how annoying it is to have someone in your ear that's getting a getting uh that's trying to affect your game plan and stuff. So he's not doing that, and he's especially not doing it after an absolutely perfect performance by the offense the week before. So I don't buy that at all. Yeah, I guess the reason fans jump on it is because he did acknowledge that in recent years he would call a few plays a game when he likes something. And people latched onto that, and and it just amplified the whole notion of what was – derisively called the gumbo offense which was you know pieces of everything and and so the big fear was that would he actually give Graham Harrell autonomy to run his offense I think he has I'm not buying into the conspiracy theory there so we'll we'll leave that be as is yeah but let's focus on why they couldn't run the ball and 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 to me the most disappointing aspect of this game to me was was the offensive line and I know that Keaton Slovis threw the three picks but I was really buying into the to the improvements up front and going against the coverages you just described where they should have been able to create running lanes and, and move the ball on the ground, and they just couldn't. Uh, every week we go through the pro football focus advanced data and and uh, mine all the interesting nuggets out of that. And they had Brett Nealon, center Brett Nealon, down for, for uh, giving up five uh, quarterback rushes, four hurries and a sack. And he just really struggled with that matchup against the, the nose tackle, like you said. Were you stunned? Were you surprised that, that he couldn't do more on the ground, given what they were looking at? I was. I was very surprised. Uh, I think your point's spot on. And not simply just because of scheme. Like, anytime you have three down linemen and then a fourth, maybe a fifth linebacker. Yeah, keep in mind, if, you're, if there's a five-man box, that's favorable because you have a hat for a hat. There were looks there where they had four guys, or at least four and a half, because you kind of have one linebacker in and out kind of thing, but that's neither here, here nor there. I was surprised, not only because of scheme, but also because this BYU defense gave up like 
280 yards on the ground or something crazy like that the first two games or and I know, I know you're you're facing uh facing Zach Moss at Utah but even then BYU, I mean Utah's offensive line I mean they're always gonna have a good offensive line but I know that was a question mark for them walking into the season so for them to do that kind of week one or at least put up yards on the ground I just was surprised because I mean Utah's de- or uh, BYU's defensive line they look good. I mean I mean USC's offensive line might not be all world but they're solid and they show that the first two games. So for BYU to 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 push USC's offensive line around a little bit, I was totally surprised and uh it makes me think man like is Utah's offensive line that good? Those kind of questions but uh was definitely surprised and I'm right with you in terms of um little disappointed because when you get that scheme against BYU you you you'd hope to have a couple runs pop uh, throughout the course of the game. BYU had the statistically speaking uh, the third worst rush defense in the FBS entering this game. Now it's a small sample size; it's only from two games, but still, both Utah and Tennessee had run the ball well against them. So really, did not see what we did not expect to see what we saw Saturday. And this is where I get into a, what I think is a valid criticism of the game management uh, on the coaching staff, whether it's Clay, whether it's Graham Harrell's call, whether it's Mike Jenks. Marquis Stepp, who's been a, a popular topic of debate and discussion already this season. For, for a guy with uh, uh, Marquis Ste- Marquis Stepp's your guy. I'm excited for this one. <laughs> for, for a guy with 12 carries on the season, he's generated more dialogue than just about anybody on this roster this fall. So he comes in in the second quarter. And, you know, fans have been clamoring. Uh, some of us in the media, like myself, have been clamoring to see this guy get a chance. Comes in the second quarter, has three carries in a span of four plays for 33 yards. You're like, boom, there it is. That's what we've been saying. Get this guy the rock. At least get him in the rotation. He doesn't have to supplant Vi or Carr, but get him in the rotation. What happens? Doesn't touch the ball again until the fourth quarter. Goes over a quarter without touching the ball at all. Meanwhile, USC has now committed to the run in the third quarter. They come out, their first series of the second half, Carr goes for a loss of two, a gain of two, Slovis scrambles for five, they punt. Next series, Vi breaks off a 16-yard run, then goes for four, three, two, they punt. And it just felt like what we saw from those guys the first two weeks was them exploiting and capitalizing on openings and holes and doing what they can do in space. And that space wasn't there this week. And what does Marquis Step do best? He creates his own yards. Again, according to Pro Football Focus, he averaged three yards after contact per carry, whereas Carr was at one and Vi was at one point something. He just has a different effect in those settings. And when it was clear that they weren't consistently opening up gaps and lanes for, for those guys to run through, I think you've got to make the adjustment and go bring the battering ram in and let's see what he can do. And then in the fourth quarter, they go to him in short yardage situations. He gets two fourth and ones and a third and one, but he never got the chance to just get rolling for a full series and see if he could sustain it. Um, And and it was all over social media. It was all over our message board. Where's Marquis Step? Where's Marquis Step? And I asked Clay Helton after the game, I said, you know, after those first three carries he had that were so successful in the second quarter, why not go back to him sooner? And Clay's answer was, well, he also had a fumble. Well, that fumble came midway through the fourth quarter, and he recovered it. So that can't be the – what happened midway through the fourth quarter can't be the reason why you didn't play him in the third quarter. 
And so we brought it up again on the conference call last night, on Sunday night, and said, is that something you're seeing in practice for him, the, the, the fumbling that's giving you pause or concern? And he kind of talked around it again and just talked about how great it is to have three running backs and how Marquise is playing well but has two older guys in front of him. And I just don't know that that's going to sit well with, with people when one of the major criticisms against Clay has been uh, favoritism towards veteran players and, and not adjusting quick enough with young guys. And um, now I think he's debunked that a little bit when he named Keaton the backup over two older guys. But I, I don't know. I just I, I like what I see from Marquis Step, and I think that there's definitely situations where Vi and Carr will be very effective. But when it's bogged down, I think you got to be willing to go to the young guy. Yeah. Um, that, was a long, uh, that was a long rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was impassioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, I totally see how people arrive at that conclusion. Maybe this will be a fun back and forth. But I'm sure. not as, uh, as, as passionate about it because I think it kind of – I mean, obviously a lot to unpack there. I think it kind of comes in, in a bunch of angles. I think one – uh, is there an element of kind of you're looking for like, and not you personally, but our, our SC fans looking for some change that could be made? And obviously, like, oh, you got to put step in there, but you got to like if you step back, like every rep that Marquis Step is getting, Stephen Carr is not. And sure, the counter to that is, well, Stephen Carr is not even starting. Vi's in there. Well, my counter to that would be, we don't know what goes on necessarily day in and day out in terms of. What's Marquis' step like in terms of uh, pass protection or uh, in his route concepts or how much those guys trust him? Like, he fumbled in the game. I mean, Ryan, you've been at practice more than me, so I, and I don't think he's had fumbles issues. But is that – is, is, No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, is that an element of concern? I don't know. I think uh, the, the point about there's a place for him in the rotation, how does he not play in the third quarter? Well, when you are rotating three quarterbacks – or three running backs and you have a rotation there's a scenario where a running back doesn't see the field in the third quarter and I'm not saying that necessarily um I don't know how many drives they exactly had in the third quarter I just is Marquis Step a great player yes is he miles better and it's like oh my gosh what's not miles because I know you're not saying that at all but is he ways better where it's this kid's gotta gotta play I don't know if I necessarily see that either. I saw the great drive. Is it? Is he the short? Is should he be the short yardage back? Yes, I'm right with you there, and that's the scenario. And I thought that they did that for the most part in terms of late in the game putting him in there for short yeah. yardage. I felt like they did yeah. that. The one thing I did see also was, and I'd be interested to see um, if the if the coaches talk about this behind the scenes, but when they put when they put Marquise in there for third down and he gets it. And then the style of the offense is to keep rolling and not make a substitution. If they're first down back, let's say you only had to do a first down back. I don't know if Marquis Step does that because if I'm if I'm throwing a swing pass to one of those guys, I'm probably still taking Vi or uh, Stephen Carr on a swing pass in that first down when he's continued when he has to stick in the field. So I don't know. That's me kind of just play, playing the other side. I totally see where you're coming from. I think the comments about Clay, like Clay's never going to like get get on one of his backs and say, oh, well, you know what? Like, yeah, Marquise really has been struggling with like remembering the play or like fumble or whatever. Like that's never going to happen. So, I mean, the, the cookie cutter three running back response, I'm right with you there. But it just doesn't hit home with me as much to say, uh, yep, like Marquise has got to get way more because – Man, I love these other two backs, and I don't know if there's uh, 
I don't know, that, that much discrepancy, but that's just me kind of playing the other side for a sec. You see that? That's why we have you here. You, Love it. Keep me in check on, on these things, you know? Love I, it. I, I think you made a lot of good points there. Um, I, I should probably reel it back a little bit. because. But, but you're not alone. Really, you're not alone. Like, I know that's... No, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a common opinion, yeah. Because, uh, like, I was on the pregame show with... Uh, with uh, with with the co-host, I mean uh, Jordan uh, Moore. Sorry, blank out his name. With Jordan, and he was saying that the whole single time that like look at all those yards he's getting. I'm like, yeah, he, he like th- that that's right. But I just I, I don't know. Like man, Vi and Steven are doing some good things. There was one time where that exact scenario happened where uh, and I don't want to come across as a marquee step hater. I think he's great. If he was your full time back, I'm loving it. Let's roll. But there was a time where he got that third and one, and then they ran outside zone to the left. And he got tackled right there. And I'm saying, ooh, if Steven Carr's there, there might be a missed tackle there. And that's like really getting nitty gritty because you're talking about three great backs and you're almost looking for kind of like yeah. to try to compare it. But um, it's tough. And I think, uh, I mean, in, in terms of a locker room guy, I think Vi's a fan favorite. So there's probably some human element to this. I think Steven Carr, he's the, he's the highlight reel. So it's going to be hard to maybe jump him. But I think we both can agree. I can get long-winded in this whole response. We both can agree that third and one or fourth and one in the near future, Marquis, in, in, in critical scenarios especially, uh, when you're not maybe trying to do up-tempo, marquee step should be in the ballgame. Yeah, I, I really respect your perspective on this because I think everything you said there makes a lot of sense and were aspects I was not really fully considering. But we're, the only – area I'll double down on is just being willing to adjust because it was tough going there for a while and Stephen Carr has a lot of great skill set a lot of great aspects to his game if you can get him the ball in space he can do great things with it he can make guys miss but when you're running him up the gut and there's no lanes and he's just dancing in the backfield there and if that's what you're going to be doing then in that scenario, I would say we've got to get the hard yards, bring step in. I, I, so yeah. I'm, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm probably more focusing on, on one or two series and extrapolating it further than I should. But those were the moments when the whole step dialogue on social media and on our board reached its zenith was watching Carr just dance around behind a, a clogged uh, front with nowhere to go. And, and that's not his game is to create from that standpoint. His game is to create off the edge or to create catching the ball in space. So now I will also say a lot of fans have taken it to the full extreme and are, are all down on car and by. I'm not there. I, I think they all do different things and, and can be great assets to this offense. I just would be more flexible based on game flow, based on what I'm seeing, and, and be willing to, to give Marquise more reps. But – I was not considering all those factors you mentioned. Those were great points. So I, I think that uh, – No, that's that's totally fair too. And uh, the one thing I think uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head is if you're going to preach going with the hot hand, and like I don't know exactly what the message that uh, Helton, Graham Harrell, and Jinx are telling those guys. Maybe they're saying we're going to just have a rotation. But if they're saying they're going with the hot hand, the hot hand there – after that, I forget what strive it was. I think it was in like a second quarter when uh, Marquise yeah. really got going. The hot hand right there is Marquise. So then you got to get back to him, and that point's fair. And maybe you've gone to halftime shortly after, so I'm not, I don't exactly remember. But if it's going to be a hot hand element to this backfield, uh, there's something to be said about keeping, uh, keeping 30 in there. 
Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. It was it was mid-second quarter. BYU had just gone up 17-10. Marquis Stepp comes in, uh, replaces Vi, goes for 12 yards, 6 yards, and 15 yards, and then is subbed right out. And Vi goes for 3 and 2 the next two plays. Yeah. And I, I, I think just, you know, that juxtaposition – Really amplified the uh, the step fanatics a little further. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll but, my last comment here. I'll say uh, right. I, I totally get the whole thing. The my uh, my future teller uh, crystal ball or whatever match crystal ball tells me that we we can next week we could be sitting here and uh, Stephen Carr breaks two long runs and it's like right. oh my gosh he's got to get more reps. I think the be- the beauty <laughs> right. the beauty with this backfield is they USC has three. Elite backs. I'll go that far. Three elite or very good backs. Anytime one of those guys are in the game, I got no issues. And SC's had great backs in recent memory, but I mean, that is a huge luxury that anytime those three guys are in, they all can make plays and there should be no drop off or, oh my gosh, who's back there? Oh, it's him. Okay, good. Like, no, great backs. SC's in good, t- in, in good shape anytime they hand the ball off. Yeah. And, it's clear that running backs coach Mike Jinx really loves Vi Malapai, and he's going to be the bell cow for the most part of this offense as long as he's healthy. So that's what we're going to see, and we'll just—I'm uh, sure—we'll we'll debate this again. But let's <laughs> let's get to the defense before we run out of time here in this podcast. Um, it was kind of—it was—it was not a great defensive performance at all. It was the, the most yards that BYU had gained all season by far, four thirty. It was about 100 yards more than they had gotten in either of the first two games. Uh, we saw, again, a mobile quarterback giving this defense issues, extending plays, uh, making plays. That 16-yard touchdown up the gut was the go-ahead late in the fourth quarter before Chase McGrath's field goal tied it. And I don't, I don't know. Just It's hard for me to put my finger on one thing I didn't like, but the whole thing just looked – uh, uninspiring. What, what was your take on defense? Yeah, and I, I think you're, uh, you're spot on there. I don't think it was one thing necessarily. I think um, I think BYU did a good job of like making the play when it was there, and that sounds like a very like easy thing to say, but I think some of those deep balls they connected on, like those are easily like 50-50 plays, and I think, um, I mean, that was a great throw by Wilson on that uh, inside fade uh, touchdown route to the, uh, the, the the pylon on BYU's side, like, early in the game. Like, that's just a great ball. It's a great ball, a great catch. It's a DB that's, like, in in good position right there. So I think there's an element of, like, all right, that, that that's going to happen when you face a good quarterback like Wilson. I think the run late in the game by him was definitely like a call that 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 that, that offensive coordinator had dialed up in terms of SC's dropping and their eyes aren't right necessarily, and then the quarterback punishes them. But I think there's an element, there's traces of uh, of Fresno State a little bit in terms of the quarterback yeah. not get or getting out. So I think containment's definitely going to be a key a key focus in terms of, all right, we can go through our pass, pass rush lanes, and even if we don't get there, that's okay, but let's not let them scramble around and, 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 get, all, and get all creative with it. I think the asterisk there is Zach Wilson's going to do that to everyone all year long, so I think that's not necessarily going to be an SC problem, but obviously when you have SC's talent on the defensive front, you don't necessarily expect that. But I thought it was just an overall just kind of – Maybe everyone didn't have their best game. I think we saw that the concerns with the, the, the secondary in, in the offseason, not that they were bad, but I think it's not necessarily an, an elite secondary, and they definitely have, definitely have room to grow. But 
By no means was it a one-person thing. I think it was a, a byproduct of BYU making some plays, SC maybe not bringing their best effort to the park, and the defense was put in some tough, tough scenarios all game long. With interceptions, that's not easy. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's uh, – that's kind of where I net out with that one. Yeah, I guess the, the fear is just that we're seeing the same issues. So anytime they, have, they face a mobile quarterback – that's just going to be a, a major point of concern. And, and we didn't really see any improvement there from, from facing Jorge Reina to facing Zach Wilson. Uh, after the game, again, Clancy Pendergast was talking about – we asked him what was most frustrating to him, and he said, we were in the backfield and had chances to make plays and didn't make them. Well, that's the exact same thing we heard after week one. We also saw some, some more bad tackling, some, some high tackling where yeah. the Penders yeah. just got dragged for extra yards. And that's – I mean that that that's their yeah whole, their whole spring was about going back to to fundamentals and basics the whole point of their spring and simplifying things and and really not having it be so much about the competition but being about technique and basics was to correct those things and, and we're still seeing it yeah I think the tackling is a great point I didn't touch on I definitely noticed that definitely an area you gotta you gotta pick up on but I think I mean when you start like young secondary uh, members out there, like they're gonna, like that, that's an element that's gonna happen is they're gonna struggle at tackling. I mean, they're athletically they're gonna be just fine. That's why they're elite USC corners. But physically, especially against a BYU team, maybe they don't match up as well. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point. Missed tackles in terms of guys falling forward. That back had a good day. Um, the transfer from uh, South Carolina, he had a good day. But your point about the mobile quarterback. You're getting a, a, an awfully similar quarterback this week in, uh, to Wilson in, in Tyler Huntley, a guy that uh, I go on US, uh, I go on Utah radio shows all the time, and they have me break him down, and uh, I like him. I think he's a solid. I don't think he gets enough credit for kind of his capabilities, but he's savvy back there in the pocket in terms of he's not just a run-first guy, but he has the wheels to be a run-first guy kind of thing. Um, this test once again will uh, will will show its uh, show its face again this Friday. Well, we're gonna do our full podcast previewing that game, and, and we'll post it on uh, on Thursday since it's a short week. But just real fast, since we're on the topic, what would you do defensively if you had any sway on this defense? What's the one thing you would do to try and affect some actual improvement in that area? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it's definitely got to emphasize it in practice. I think uh, there's probably an element of uh, you have Connor Murphy or an, a, a backup defense end in there. I'm not blaming this on Connor Murphy, but if a more experienced Christian Rector's in there, does he keep contain a little bit better? Like I know right. Marlon Tuipelotu had a great game uh, pass rush wise. I know his stats were very good that regard, but um, I think it's just a point of emphasis. I think that's kind of the whole point of a scrambling quarterback is it's not an exact science. It's not a, Hey, we have to do this technique better, or we have to do that. It's, it's more of like a, a group body, uh, like a group effort, um, kind of thing. But it's, uh, it's tough because that's whole, that's, that's, that's Zach Wilson's game plan is to go off script. And the whole point of being off script is you can't necessarily coach against it. It's, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but I think it's a matter of those front four guys saying, okay, I might not make the game-changing sack every single play, but this guy is not 
beating me outside of my lane or this guy's not going to get the extra five seconds or I'm not going to go all out and then lose and then end up on the ground and diving for something and then I lose contain that kind of thing I think it's a discipline mentality I think it's a mentality a little bit when you go against Stanford of like I'm gonna I'm gonna do my gap assignment I might not make the the huge hit every play but I'm gonna do my gap assignment that mentality I think has to carry over when you play some of these scrambling quarterbacks and um yeah, they'll see it again this Friday. It'll be a good test. I, I fear that your comments about the mobile quarterback are going to uh, incite the Jack Sears crowd further, which has come out of the out of hiding from last week and was was back in full force on the message boards this week. In terms of in terms of uh, Jack playing for USC or Jack like practicing against the uh, the starting defense. No, and in, in, in terms of the decision made in August to put him down the depth chart and oh. force him out and <laughs> that he, sh- that he should be the quarterback in here and not Keaton. Uh, I, th- I thought we had extinguished that with uh, the Stanford game, but it was back in full force this week. As a true pocket passer, you're never going to get dual threat quarterback sympathy from me, but I, uh, <laughs> I, under- I understand the average fan gets all excited in their couch when guys are running around back there, but uh, eh, I-, I got no problem with Keaton Slovis behind center for USC. <laughs> <laughs> good, good stuff, Max. Yeah. This was fun. Um, we'll have Max on the Trojan Talk message board doing his live chat on Wednesday this week instead of Thursday. It's a short week with USC playing Friday night, so everything's moved up a day. So make sure you get on trojansports.com on Wednesday. We'll post the time uh, either tomorrow or that day once we work out logistics, and we'll have the second podcast later this week. As always, thanks, buddy. Thanks, guys.